Hi, I'm Tam Pham, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation. It's me, Mike Vardy, and this is the first part of a two-part episode featuring a guest that I've been meaning to have on the show for a really long time. We just haven't been able to connect. We've been very efficient or productive. It's Tan Pham. He is the founder of Asian Efficiency. And he is a veteran in the productivity space like myself. He's seen it all in this field. And in part one of our conversation, we're really kind of getting into the deep dive into our wealth of shared experiences. You know, the evolution we've seen, and the gems of wisdoms that he's collected and I've also collected along the way. Strap in and prepare for an insightful journey. I rarely, I don't think I've ever done a two-part episode before, but this is definitely one worth listening to. I'm releasing part one today, and then the next episode will be part two as we explore the dynamic dynamic world of productivity and time management. So let's get started. Here's part one of my conversation with Tan Pham here on A Productive Conversation. Enjoy. Tan, this has been a long time coming, us having this conversation. I mean, we've been trying to, you've never been on this program, either as when it was the Productivity Podcast or um, as a productive conversation. So this has been something we've been trying to do for a while. I know your schedule is crazy. My schedule is crazy. One reschedule is like with my dentist. You have to wait like another eight months before you're yeah. able to go. So yeah, I'm honored to you to be on the show today. Well, let's get into it. I mean, we have a storied history in this space. I mean, it's funny. I was on uh, Twitter um, a few days ago, actually a couple of days ago, uh, you know, prior to this recording, we're recording this uh, on May 31st. And so we've got, you know, obviously that's been a, a few weeks ago. And uh, someone said, uh, I think it was Tiago Forte that shared the productivity diet book, the campaign that I've got, uh, you know, going on. And he, <laughs> someone said, is he still around? Like when somebody replied to the tweet, like, is he still around? I thought he went away or something like that. Like, it wasn't like angry or anything. Like, it was just kind of like, oh, and I'm like, no, I've been around. Uh, and you've been around in the space for a long, how long have you been running Asian efficiency for now? So I had to check uh, the domain registration the other day, mm -hmm. and it was January 1st, 2011. So it's been uh, a little bit over 12 years now. Which is about the same time that I really started Productivityist, I think. It was. It might have been still Vardy.me then, but I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today was, you know, kind of, we've been around long enough to see some of the, the landscape change in productivity, right? The people who were, are, you know, doing it back when we started and now there's a whole new wave of, of people. What have you, what have you noticed um, in terms of the personalities or even the, the things that get professed uh, that has either changed? Let's start with what's changed over the past few years that, you know, past, you know, decade plus um, in the space in terms of maybe not necessarily, you could, we could go into some of the, the advice or the insights, but more about the way people approach things. Yeah, well, when I first started in 2011, uh, there were very few people that I could study from back in the day, right? So Merlin Mann yep. was one, uh, David Allen uh, was one, and and you would maybe have some other personal developments or self-help people that you could study from. Um, so there wasn't a, a landscape of a lot of people that you could you know, listen to podcasts too, because podcasting was barely a thing back then. Blogs were just kicking off. And so 
if you compare that to what we have now, there are a lot more people that you can study under from mm -hmm. people on YouTube, people that you just follow from their newsletters, you know, people who still have blogs and podcasts and so on. And so uh, I think for that particular reason, it's good in the sense that you can kind of pick and choose who you want to study from. But it's also bad or not bad, but confusing to a lot of people because a lot of people will have contradicting advice of how one can go about getting stuff done. Right. And so I can I, I can see from a consumer point of view, and this is something I've seen a lot with clients that I work with. You know, Mike Vardy does one thing one way, Tan does one thing another way, you know, this person does one thing another way. And you just go, what do I do? Like, how do I know what's right for me? And I think that can be uh, quite of a challenge. And that's been a big change over the last few years. I think the other thing that that tells people that there's no one right way to do something. I think that's because that was the hard part, I think, for a lot of people, especially and, and maybe I think that was the rise of getting things done in terms of being having such an ardent following, almost cult-like to a degree, right? Where it was the only one that kind of was systematized. Sure, you had like the Eisenhower matrix or and then the Covey matrix was kind of co-opted from that. And I mean, if you look at any of the frameworks or systems that are out there, they all have inklings or, or elements of systems and, and frameworks that have existed for years and years, like we're talking hundreds of years or, and it's interesting because as you were talking about that, I'm thinking, yeah, like we didn't have a lot of people that we could look to either uh, for mentorship or even just to kind of, I mean, comparison is not the right word, but I mean, there was very few people that, I mean, remember we did the OmniFocus setup thing at Macworld and it was me, you, Merlin, um, Sven Vechner was there. Um, Shakti, Shaki. Yeah, yeah, Schechter was there. Uh, David Sparks. Like there were, but there was, I mean, they assembled who they thought were like, these are the people that use OmniFocus especially. But you're right, there wasn't that many. And now there's so many choices and there's so many different platforms too. You mentioned the podcast. YouTube was not, you know, people weren't going to see guys like Ali Abdal and, and Thomas Frank and stuff on YouTube. But I think, you're right. Now that there's so much, I think maybe the lesson isn't who do I follow? It's become more apparent that there isn't just more than one way to skin a cat, right? Like there's clearly, and there, there always has been, right? Yeah. Like when you and I kicked things off, uh, GTD was like the main thing and it was an easy option to say, Hey, I'm just going to study GTD. And once you study GTD, you realize, okay, uh, there's you know rules and principles behind the system, which is good. And I think that's pretty much universal regardless of which system you use nowadays. And then there's like ways to break the rules and customize it and make it your own and go against the rules that you know David talks about. And you start to realize like there's a lot of ways we can skin a cat. Mm -hmm. And even you look at different systems today, like I have my own methodology and system now because in in the beginning, I think the best way I could think about it is you would have a toolbox and everyone had different sets of tools. Yeah. And GTD was kind of like a comprehensive system that you can follow and there weren't that many, but many people had toolboxes. And nowadays there are, yes, there are a lot of toolboxes, but there are also a lot more different systems that mm -hmm. people can follow. And so wherever you are on the spectrum in terms of you're just starting out, you're intermediate or you're advanced, I think the best thing someone can do nowadays is just follow one particular system, get it to a point where you're using it, you know how it works, because all the systems 
has the same principles in common. Like we all have to write stuff down in some shape or form, yep. whether it's you know, pen and paper or digitally, we all have to process our inbox, right? We all have to review our stuff every now and then. Like all these things are universally true. Mm-hmm. And these are all habits and skills that we want to eventually acquire. And also you and I teach to people. Uh, and then once you kind of know what, what the system is and you're, acquire, you're acquiring those skills, you can then make it your own over time. Right. And then I think from there, you kind of start coasting. Well, and I think I think it's interesting you bring up um, your framework, my framework. Like, I mean, time, energy, attention. That's what you talk about. T, right? Like that's the those are commonly found in time crafting, right? Like the time based, you know, the attention pass for time, the attention p- pass for energy, um, attention. They're called attention pass. Like I mean, that's why. And so it's you're right. Like again, I think what GTD did, and it's interesting because I just had a conversation with David not too long ago at the running remote conference is. David put that system in place for himself. That's how he even said, like, I wanted to be, I think he's even quoted saying, like, I wanted to be as lazy as possible. In other words, I didn't want to have to think about what, like, everything led to something, right? So there was no, you know, the friction was low, right? And for every, every, it's not even just every person, but I think every situation for people is different too, which is why the toolbox, I think we've gotten to the point where it's like, I have a system and then I have these tools, golf clubs, whatever you want to call them that help me orchestrate or move forward with this system or be able to, you know, optimize it. And I wonder if, and I want to get into this. I wonder if um, people are recognizing, and maybe maybe COVID has something to do with this. Maybe the pandemic did, um, where people are realizing that maybe getting so deep in the weeds with this stuff, um, which we, which I mean, Merlin called it productivity porn, uh, I believe at one point in time. <laughs> like getting so deep in the weeds with this stuff may not be the best course of action. If anything, it might be the thing that leads to inaction. What do you think? Well, I think I've personally seen with a lot of people that I've worked with is that. We have this uh, fallacy that we think that we have to make drastic changes to our life to be more productive. And it's this idea that, okay, if I want to be fit, I have to work out six days a week. If I want to be more productive, I have to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning or, you know, 4.30 nowadays or 4 a.m. club. You know, it changes <laughs> every... early and earlier every year. It's pretty, yeah, pretty it just changes like, every you know, go to bed at four. Go to bed at 2 in the afternoon, get up at 10 at night. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, so it's like... We don't have to make those drastic changes to get the results we're looking for. Oftentimes, small, consistent changes done over time can lead to major results. And so I like this idea of something we always like to say at AE is one tweak a week. If we can make one tweak a week, that's 52 little changes that you add to your life that can make such a massive difference. Uh, for example, if you just you know took a five-minute walk every single day, and that's like one tweak you made every single week, you start walking five minutes every single day, you're just a little bit more calm, you're a little bit more creative, right? You're adding a new habit, which is always the most difficult thing to build at first. And then you can go from there. You can extend it to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And before you know, you're walking 10 steps a day or 10,000 steps a day, right? And so I'm a big believer of, you know, we don't have to make drastic changes. We can start small and do it consistently because at the end of the day, sustainability, I think is the most challenging aspect for most people when they're learning this stuff. And that's, and that's something I've been striving to communicate with people more and more is consistency is one thing, but you have to be able to sustain it. Right. I think we get that confusion of, 
I need to be consistent. But if you can't sustain that consistency, then it's, you're actually not going to be consistent. So to your point, going for a walk for five minutes every day or meditating for like three minutes and then expanding upon that as you want or, or journaling. Like there's a reason the five minute journal exists. I've said that many times, like making those slight tweaks and not doing all five at once. Not going, I'm going to go walk for five minutes, meditate for three minutes and journal. No, pick one, start there. Do you think that, um, and again, I think these messages get weirdly warped. Uh, inbox zero is a good example, right? You know, the idea of Merlin's inbox zero, which has now become like, get your email to zero, which is not what he meant at all. You and I both know that. Anyone who's looked at inbox zero knows that that's originally what it meant. But like with any language, things change over time. Um, I think about things like, uh, you know, again, those, those, like you said, drastic changes, making things happen quickly. Memento more, the stoic stuff, like you, you too one day will die, right? Or you will die. Remember you will die or live for today because tomorrow isn't guaranteed. But people tend like with the tweaks or the radical changes, they take that to the extreme. I better get it all done today because tomorrow is, and that's a recipe for burnout. So how do you, how do, how do, People like us in this situation where we've been around help people recognize that, look, you probably have more time than you think because we're terrible at figuring out, like calculating time, let alone managing it is tricky. What are some of the things that you tell people who are like going, you know, well, I've got to get it all done today because, you know, um, tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Like that's what the, you know, that's what that message is, which is not what that message is, but it's so pithy that sometimes it comes across that way for people who live in a world where they're just go, go, go fast, fast, fast now, now, now. One of the challenges I see that people have nowadays is that their time horizon is so short in terms of how far they can look ahead mm. so that they can only think about what matters today. So for a lot of people, when they're looking at their to-do list or they're trying to get something done, they're just looking at today and they're not looking at next week. They right. can't even look that far ahead because they're just firefighting for every single day of what needs to be done. And so the challenge becomes then is how do we go from just knowing what we need to accomplish over the next 24 hours to let's just say, what do we need to accomplish over the next seven days? And if we change that time horizon, we can change our approach or our strategy to how we get something done, right? Because if I just live for today, and if I wanted to be fit, I would just be running on, you know, town lake here in Austin, Texas all day long, because that's how I'm going to get fit. That's how I'm going to burn calories, right. right? But if I have a whole week to burn off the same amount of calories, then my strategy is going to be very different and how I accomplish things and how I go about it, the pace I'm going at, mm -hmm. the intensity, right, the frequency. And so what I'm trying to do with most people now is uh, because the old mindset I used to have was, you know, I have to maximize every single minute of my day. Like I'm planning for every 15 minutes, you know, I'm making sure that I'm time tracking everything. And, you know, there's some value in going through that experience, but I think most people nowadays don't have to go through that trial and error approach where, uh, to, to me, it's, it's a rite of passage nowadays. If you track your time for seven days, <laughs> because you definitely don't have to, uh, I think the approach and the skill acquisition that I'm most, uh, focused on right now with people is how do we plan for the next day and how do we plan for the next week? And if we can be proactive in terms of looking further ahead, and then we can put, you know, time blocks in place. We can put stuff on our calendar. We can have contingency plans to say, hey, if this doesn't work out today, then we have, you know, 
something that we can you know maybe readjust the day after or on Friday later this week. And so I'm just trying to get people from being reactive to start becoming proactive. Right, right. And even responsive to a degree, right? Like, because I think the other thing is you mentioned firefighting. And that tells me when people say that to me, they're like, oh, man, I spend so much day of my day putting out fires. I'm like, like a firefighter or just like you're not a trained firefighter and you do that. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, trained firefighters will let shit burn. Like, they will let parts of things burn so they can strategically attack the fire in a way like they're assessing things they're going okay the wind's going like if you ever i mean my wife watches her fair share of fire like first responder shows so i've watched a bit of that but i've also done a little bit of reading on it's like yeah when someone says i'm fighting fires all day long my question is how how are you fighting them not not we all have to do that i don't use that term very often anymore because sometimes when people use i'm like you're really not understanding what firefighters do uh it's a bit disrespectful but uh, or can be but i think to your point people um it's such a drastic shift most of the time to being like, I want to plan things. I want to get things, you know, like, and we talk, David Allen, the horizons of focus, he talks about, you know, the runway versus 40,000 feet, like, and all the steps in between. And so we either, we shift from this radical, like, I'm going to be, you know, really proactive. And then when things don't work, we shift immediately to reactive. Like there's no, the middle is hard to find, right? Like that center sounds like, you know, and again, a good example would be as a writer setting a daily word count versus a weekly one. Now, interestingly, I think that probably weekly would work best for most people because life happens, right? Things happen around, but you also need to, and this is where reflection takes place is you need to go, well, wait a minute. I didn't, this isn't working for me because I'm not writing as many words over the course of the week as I said I should. So should I shift to do a day or should I make it like I allocate a certain period of time per day to write so that way I know I'm going to hit it? Or was that word count realistic? And a lot of people don't take that time to reflect, right? To And I, I've, I've said reflection is attention. Like it, it, there are elements of that. So what are your thoughts on you know, the idea of reflection, having a reflective practice journaling, what do you do? Because clearly, as you mentioned, you, you used to do things one way and you've shifted and you're doing a whole bunch of other stuff beyond AE on the side right now. So you've clearly, I mean, your world has expanded and, you know, productivity isn't necessarily like the be all end all for you. Right. I don't think it should be for anybody, but what, what, in terms of reflective practice, what are you doing and what do you, what do you talk to people about? So when I first started learning about GTD, one of the steps you learn as the five uh, part process is to have a weekly review. And without the weekly review, the whole process kind of falls apart. Right. And uh, I remember this is a funny story. I was at a house party many years ago when I was uh, very much single and ready to date. And I talked to this beautiful woman and uh, she asked me, like, what do you do? Right. And that's a typical American thing. You ask somebody what they do for work. And I said, oh, you know, I help people become more productive at work. And she goes, oh, I just, you know, read, getting things done. I really enjoyed that book. And I thought she was just trying to impress me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I quizzed her and said, okay, if you've read the book, you know, what's the most important step in the process? And she goes, oh, it's the weekly review. Without it, the whole thing falls apart. And that's <laughs> when she and I went on a date uh, a week later. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I was a big proponent of the weekly review. I tell people all the time about it. And one of the nuances you don't read about or learn about is 
the principle behind it is that you want to have some sort of process in place where everything is up to date in your system and you know what's going on, right? Right. And there was a point in time where my company was in super growth mode, where things were breaking down every single day. Things were always changing. And people even listening to the show might work in a, in a, in a company right now where things are moving so fast that by the time you do a weekly review, everything is already out of date and it might take you like two hours to get up to speed and it might not seem worth your time. And it seems like pointless almost to do a weekly review at that point because mm -hmm. it takes so much time that uh, it doesn't make any difference for you because things change all the time. So the principle is still the same, which is you know staying on top of everything. And so I realized, okay, when my company was growing so fast, instead of doing a weekly review, I should be doing a daily review because now it allowed me to stay on top of things. And so when I was in that hyper growth mode, I did a daily review and it took maybe like five to seven minutes to do every single day. Mm -hmm. And if I did that seven days a week, you know, it'd be the equivalent of doing a weekly review on the, on the regular cadence. Right. And uh, now I was, I was able to stay on top of everything. And I felt really confident about what, what was up to date, what I needed to do, what I needed to focus on, what I could you know disregard. And once my company kind of slowed down and was kind of like at an even keel pace, I could go back to a weekly review because now things weren't so crazy and intense. Right. And so I'm much more aware of now of cadence and pace in my life where if things are going fast, my processes like you were alluding to earlier, I have to be responsive to that and say, you know, how do I adapt to this? You know, maybe my cadence will change. Maybe my frequency will change or my intensity. Right. And so I'm a little bit more aware of that now, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I was not aware of that whatsoever. I want to talk a bit about some of the stuff you're doing that's outside of AE to a degree now. Like I've noticed, and I don't know if this is widely known. So if it isn't, then we can we can uh, we can pull back on it. But you're doing a lot more social stuff these days. Like over the last little while, like planning, like having events in Austin and getting a, like what was the catalyst for you to go? You know, I need I need or I want to do this kind of thing in and of itself separate from AE. And then I'd love to hear if you're willing to share how some of the lessons that you've learned in the productivity realm over the year helps you with that, that kind of new thing that you've kind of embraced. Yeah. So for those who don't know, uh, so I started AE 2011, uh, moved to Austin 2014. Uh, I was kind of a digital nomad between 2011 and 2014, uh, settled in, Austin, Texas, this was going to be my home base. And um, I read a book about 2016, 2017, called 30 Lessons for Living. And the basic premise of the book is the author interviewed people who are about to die. And he asked them, what's one life lesson you would like to pass on to the next generation? And a big theme of the book is that our happiness comes from our relationship with people, right? So if you have a great relationship with your spouse, with your neighbor, your community, your siblings, your parents, you know, your best friends, like you're going to live a happier life and you're going to be uh, living longer as well. Even if you have all the bad habits in life, like smoking and drinking and doing a lot of drugs, like you're still going to live longer compared to those who have uh, weak relationships with people or shallow relationships. And so kind of funny enough, Mike, at the same time, uh, because I was pretty effective with how I managed my time, I had all this free time. Mm -hmm. I was like, what do I do with this free time now? Right? Like my business is doing all right. Uh, I have all this free time. Like, what do I do now? And making more money wasn't going to make me happier. And, you know, one catchphrase I'm kind of known for today is happy people are productive people. And this is a byproduct of me reading this book and go, okay, 
you know, I might see Mike Vardy down the street and I might know Mike Vardy by name. I might know what he does for a living, but I actually don't know Mike Vardy as a person because I've only hung out with him in maybe group settings or I see him on the street. I said, hello, you know, we said some pleasantries and then off we go. So I kind of realized I know so many people by name, but I actually don't know them as a person, like who they are, what their story is, what they're passionate about, what they're into. And once I made that commitment to say, hey, I'm going to be here in Austin long term, uh, I'm going to invest my time and energy into the community. So I started hosting dinner parties. I started hosting a lot more events purely for the fact that I want to build more community and friendships and most specifically deeper relationships with different people. And the byproduct of this is that I became a lot happier as a person. And because I became happier, even though I didn't any you know, additional productivity training or learned new apps or tools because I was happier. You know, when I woke up, I was like, okay, what do we need to do today? You know, what's my to-do list today? What's, what's on the agenda? What's for the next 30 days? And because I was so much more excited and joyful, I was so much more productive as a byproduct. And this is where the idea came from of, you know, happy people are productive people. Even though I didn't learn any technical skills, I truly believe that anybody who becomes happier uh, and more content in life will naturally be more productive as well. So there's going to be people listening to this episode that, you know, not you, you and I have both spoken at events where the the slant is productivity. And obviously, like, you know, we need to be productive. But again, what does productive mean? What is productivity? Like, I would love to hear what your thought process has changed over the last decade plus from this is what productivity is then or what you believed it was to what it is now. Yeah. So if you asked me 12 years ago, productivity, I would say to me was, yeah, how do I become so efficient so that I have more time to do the things that I want to do, right? right. And everything that you do is so efficient that, you know, if it takes a person one hour to do, you don't have to do it in 10 minutes, right? Uh, and if you do this over and over and over again, across all the things you do, you become an efficient person. You have supposedly more free time, but typically that free time then goes back into just doing more stuff. So it was always like, do, you know, do more in less time. That was kind of like the motto mm -hmm. at the time. Right. And I think nowadays, uh, maybe this is part of, you know, us getting older. Like, I feel like this conversation is like you and I being old people it's sitting true. on a porch, <laughs> you know, rocking our chairs right now and uh, looking back and, you know, being a little bit wiser. Uh, to say, I think the purpose for most of us is to be content and happy. And productivity is just a means of a way to get there somehow, right? So if we are more productive, we have more free time, which I think is a valuable component to our lives, which is a valuable resource that I think all of us want, just like more money is something that uh, like all of us want. Same thing with time. We all want more energy as well, right? We all want to live a little bit longer if we can and be vibrant and have energy to do the things we want to do. And so if you think, for example, about travel, travel is a unique activity in the sense that it requires time to do, it requires money to do, and it requires energy or health to do. And if you think about it, most of us don't always have all three at once. We don't always have the time, the money, and the health to do the particular thing, right? right? So for example, you and I, we can go right now to Florida, lay on the beach anytime and just hang out and do absolutely nothing, right? Yep. But we can also do that when we're 70. However, if you and I are both, you know, 75 years old and we want to climb Machu Picchu, 
even though we might have the time to do it and the money to do it, we might not have the health or mobility to do that. And so I'm a lot more aware now of you know, what are those three resources, time, health, you know, and money, and how do I set up my life in such a way so that I can do the things now when I have all three and gradually shift my life to, you know, let's say I am getting older, that I might not have the health to do the things I want to do and change my perspective that way in the activities that I do. And, and so I think my perspective on productivity now is, okay, how do I become a lot more aware of what I can do now and value now? And maybe not in the future. So I can think a little bit further ahead and optimize for happiness that way, because I know when I optimize for happiness, the byproduct will be that I'm productive. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation. Can't wait to give you part two next week. But for now, to get all the show notes and everything related to this episode, head to productivityist.com slash podcast 479. Of course, you can look at your show notes, which you have in the podcast app that you're using, and you can directly access everything from there. You can also access our podcast sponsors from the show notes as well. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to check out the sponsors that you would have heard during this episode. Let them know I sent you. That way they know that they were discovered by you through me. Uh, another way to support the show, of course, is to subscribe to the show. And that's going to be the easiest way for you to get part two of this episode. So just hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening to this episode. That way you don't miss a single episode of what's to come and you're able to access the archives quickly and easily. Until next time, where I'm back with Tan for part two of our conversation, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.